Welcome to the Equipping You podcast, where our mission is to equip Alliance pastors and leaders to live spiritually healthy lives and lead healthy churches. Equipping You is a ministry of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org. Hey, 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 welcome back to Equipping You podcast. This is season six, episode seven. We're coming to you today from all across America. We are a nationwide ministry, but specifically, I'm coming to you from Lancaster, Ohio. Are you ready for this, Alan? I'm ready. Birthplace of William Tecumseh Sherman. Wow. Of Civil War fame. I'm a little bit nervous about that because I'm an Atlanta Braves fan and Sherman burned down Atlanta. But other than that, uh, we'll celebrate that Civil War hero. And uh, I'll say I'm Terry, Church Ministries Leader for the Alliance. And I'm Alan, uh, Director of Multiplication in Eastern PA, uh, and thankful to be part of this uh, great opportunity to encourage our pastors. Indeed. And I'm Caitlin, the Equipping You producer and the Digital Media Team Lead for the Alliance. Woohoo! Hey, hey, hey. And the driver of the Equipping You podcast bus. Driver of the bus. I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> it reminds me of the old Partridge family show. Uh, Alan, you <laughs> clearly remember that. They had their own. <laughs> oh, you're gonna you're almost tempting me to sing for once, Terry. I'm not gonna do it. Let's get through one podcast without a vocal performance. Oh, well, we could try, but I, you know, I could, I'm just going to say that first song that comes to my mind is, I think I love you. And that song resonates in my mind deeply over all those years of watching the Partridge family when I was a little kid. Heard it the other day on uh, the seven seventies on seven on my SXM. That sounds like your radio station, Terry. No, I don't listen to that one very often actually, but I happened to catch that song uh, the other day. So on to more important things. By the way, she did call it a musical performance, not a musical disaster. So I'm, I'm at least somewhat encouraged by that. Yeah. I have grace. Today, <laughs> our guest is Carl Vaders. <laughs> Back with us for a second time, or as we sometimes say, a repeat offender on That's the right. podcast. And no relation to Darth. No relation to Darth. So far as we know, uh, I wonder if he's done that. What is it? Uh, the uh, genetics thing that lets yeah. you know who your well, ancestor.com maybe yeah. it's never known. Yeah. So we did a special coronavirus episode with uh, Carl, but uh, today we, we're going to let him focus on his specialty, Alan, which is... He's the small church pastor guy. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so uh, he is uh, the teaching pastor of Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Orange County, California, Fountain Valley, to be exact, 28 years at that uh, church, and uh, does a lot of writing, blogging, conferences on the whole idea of the small church, which he'll help unpack and define today. If you're a small church pastor out there, know from the get-go what you do is vitally important and appreciated by us. And uh, so listen closely as Carl talks to you about some of the dynamics of smaller churches. So grab yourselves a green smoothie, which is uh, what my five-year-old grandson Canyon calls a green sour apple slushy 
from Sheets, another shout out to Eastern PA, and sit back, pretty good by the way, I had a little bit of it because I didn't want him to drink all of that sugar, sit back, relax, here we go. Hey, Equipping You friends, it's Caitlin here, and I want to tell you about something super special that we have launched here at Equipping You that's just for you, and we think you're really going to love it. If you're an avid Equipping You listener, an Equipping You live attender, or both, you need to join our Facebook group called Equipping You Community. We love that on the podcast and at Equipping You Live, we get to empower you in your ministries. But we believe that for you to really see the true transformation of your leadership that you want, applying what you learn in community is key. So pause this episode right now and head over to facebook.com slash groups slash equipping you community. Or you can go to equippingyou.com and scroll all the way to the bottom and click on equipping you community. We can't wait to see you there. So, Carl, welcome back to uh, Equipping You Podcast. We're glad to have you back. We had you on last spring during uh, COVID, uh, and uh, you encouraged and equipped pastors of small churches who were facing a pile of uh, changes at that moment in their lives. Such a helpful episode. Thank you. It was. It really was. Oh, yeah. You're, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me back again. The first invitation is nice. The second invitation means you didn't screw up too badly the first time. So it's always <laughs> That's right. Nice. Always well, nice here you go. The second. You can feel affirmed today. There we go. Yeah, they keep asking Alan and me to do this too. Oh, no, we keep asking ourselves to do it. So maybe there's <laughs> nothing in there after all. But Caitlin so, stays with us. So in any case, we didn't get much into your background in the last uh, interview. So uh, take some time, if you would, Carl, and Tell us about your uh, spiritual journey and your call to ministry. Sure. Uh, I am actually a third-generation pastor. Um, wow. Yeah. So I was I was actually literally born while my dad was preaching a sermon. It was wow. a Sunday. Yeah, it was a Sunday afternoon. They brought me to the hospital. They they you know, this was back in the day when dads weren't in the delivery room anyway. Right. And they they looked at my mom and said, She's she's you know, she she may be a full day away. She's not even close to giving birth yet, but we'll keep her in. You can go do what you need to do. So he went back, he preached. I came early, so I I literally was born while he was preaching a Sunday evening sermon. He came back and there I was. Um, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm about as, as, as churched as a guy gets. <laughs> that's, that's, that's it. So, yeah. So that was, that was my, that was my start. And, um, and then I, I felt uh, my own personal call to ministry. Actually, I, actually I fought it for a little while because I knew that pastoring is really, you don't go into pastoring because it's a family business. That's not wise. Right. And yeah. I, I, uh, I don't know a lot, but I knew enough to figure that out. So I tested the waters on a bunch of other things and none of them worked. And I finally just gave into the call and um, spent my, uh, all of my ministry years have been um, in California. And shortly after I got out of Bible college, so it was, it was 1981, I graduated. And that was right then was just when the church growth movement was beginning to kind of hit mainstream pastoral teaching. And within five years after me leaving Bible college, everybody was teaching something completely different. I was basically taught the way my dad had been taught and the way my grandfather had been taught. In fact, I even used several of the textbooks my dad had used in Bible college. I borrowed them from him because they were using the same books. And within five years, it was all new books, all new ideas, all based on church growth. 
So I had to kind of unlearn and relearn church growth stuff on the fly as a pastor and really uh, appreciated it and still do appreciate a great deal of what has been has come out of the church growth movement. But um, as I tried doing it in the congregations that I was serving, it never seemed to work for me like the books told me they would. And then I started looking around and realizing, hey, I'm not the only one for whom this is not producing these huge numbers. Uh, while there was great benefit to it, the numbers didn't didn't come about. So I went through a season where I almost burnt out and almost left ministry over my discouragement, really in no other reason other than the numbers weren't adding up. And so I thought, I must be messing something up. I must be you know, wearing rose-colored glasses, looking at my church, thinking it's awesome, but it can't be awesome because the numbers aren't happening. And I went through a very difficult season where uh, the Lord really helped me, brought some people into my life who helped me understand that, uh, yes, you can have a healthy, strong, missional, outreaching church and not have uh, the constant numerical growth that seems to be promised uh, by some of the teaching that's out there. And so I started looking around and going, uh, I'm learning this by myself. I got to start assembling it together. And maybe if I put it out and let others know about this, it might be of interest. And the moment I started putting it out, it caught on like wildfire because I was talking to 90% of pastors in the world. Um, so that's, uh, that's in a very short nutshell, a very long story. No, that's great. And I appreciate yeah. that so much. And of course, then you become known as the the small church pastor guy. Uh, yeah. Honestly, I, I could list a pretty long list of pastors that I know who have been encouraged and equipped by you uh, and the resources you offer, whether it's uh, Small Church Essentials book or the blog posts, or you, I know you've been part of some conferences, you know, along those lines where they've experienced some of your equipping there. So they would, they would come to our conference. Let's be honest. They would come to our district conference, then leave that and go to your conference. And all we heard about was your conference, not <laughs> our conference. We can be honest about that. You know, I wasn't going to bring that up, Terry, but you know, since you did. Yeah. Truth. <laughs> <No>. truth. <laughs> it is truth. Uh, and he's, it's, I can think of the guys that did it and I uh, love them to pieces. Yep. Um, but tell us then. You know, you kind of referenced some people that were influential to you along the way. So who were they? Who were influential in development, your development as a leader? Uh, Not to be too cliche, but uh, my dad was by far the strongest um, influence on me. Um, Mm -hmm. He he probably had the best balance of um, kind of an entrepreneurial and management ability along with the pastoral heart he pastored very small churches where I was born was a ridiculously small church. And then he, he helped the churches did grow. And then he moved to bigger churches and he ended up in churches that were not mega, but certainly large. The the final church that he pastored was close to a thousand people. And yet it seemed like he knew everybody's name. I don't know how he pulled it off. Uh, You know, when people say beyond a certain level, you can't know everybody's name, they're right. But somehow my dad was the exception to the rule. Um, And and, and yet he still always had this pastor's heart and he always appreciated and was always elevating the the kind of overlooked pastors around him and and leaders around him. So he was really my my main influence. And anytime I'd kind of go off the rails, I'd sit down and talk with him. He'd kind of bring me back. to, to center again. And that was always really, really helpful. So he, he was by far my primary. And, and to me, it, it speaks to uh, the importance of uh, two things. One, having a pastoral presence in your life. Uh, you know, I, w- I was blessed to have a strong, godly uh, father and mother figure, m- m- mother and father both, who really set an example of what a godly home was like. 
And he also happened to be my pastor. And so I had a great, strong pastoral influence. And it was one of those things where as I'm going along through my life, I look around and I see so many pastors who don't have a strong mentor in their life, who they really have a trusting relationship like I, I have had and continue to have with my dad, and a whole bunch of small church uh, members who are really longing for the kind of pastoral presence that I saw my dad provide for people for so many years. So um, yeah, it really all comes back uh, to that for me. Any Anytime I would tr try to chase off after some idea, it was always kind of my the the my dad used to call it the middle C, uh, he, you know, when when you're learning how to play piano, the first thing you learn is middle C, and everything flows out from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good, good stuff, rich stuff. So, uh, Mister Small Church Pastor Guy, how <laughs> would you define a small church? Uh, before I get to that, I got to tell you, I'm so grateful I wrote uh, more, more than one book because after the first book, The Grasshopper Myth, they weren't calling me the small church guy. They were calling me the grasshopper guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the second and third books uh, changed that from the grasshopper guy to the small church guy. So that's a much, a much happier. And they got the karate kid connection, right? Oh. Exactly. <laughs> every time. Every time. Um, yeah. Uh, the way I define a small church has actually changed over the years. So if you look at my first two books, you'll actually see them defined slightly differently than what I'm doing now. And if I ever go back and do a rewrite of either of them, I'll probably update it to something like this. The way I define small church now is there are really two very distinct types of small churches. There's the church of 50, give or take 50. And there's the church of 150, give or take 50. And when I say a church of 50, I mean an average weekend attendance, not membership, because we know there's a lot of you know churches that have their membership is all over the place. It can be way less than average attendance, or it can be way more than average attendance. Mm -hmm. But those aren't the people that take your time. What takes your time is the typical you know attendance on a weekend. So 50, give or take 50, and 150, give or take 50. And there are real distinctions, big differences between the church of 50, give or take 50, and the church of 150, give or take 50. And in fact, if you're in a church of 20 now, and you you just you know did the quick arithmetic in your head and realized wait a minute he that means a church of 200 is considered small that may be bigger than the biggest church in your town i i, I get that there are big dis differences between a church of 20 and a church of 200 but here's why i include all of them as small church because the way they're pastored a church of 20 and a church of 200 have far more similarities in the way they're pastored than a church of 200 has with a church of even 350 or 500 wow the change that happens above what we call the 200 barrier, not a term that I'm a fan of, but it's the most common term we use for it, is exactly what I talked about earlier. Once you get above 200, unless you're my dad, you really can't know everybody and pastor everybody personally. It just isn't possible anymore. And in fact, you know, even when I'm talking about my dad, that was my perception as a child. Obviously, he had people that did the job and who helped out and who were pastoring people. But that's the, that's the biggest difference. So even when I do uh, seminars and conferences, I typically aim at the church of 50, give or take 50. But if you're in a church of 150, give or take 50, uh, you will get, you know, you, you won't miss anything. No, nothing that I say will, will be missing out. But what we got to recognize is the church of 20 is a far more common expression of the body of Christ than the church of 200. And, and the church of 2000 is such an outlier, it, it almost doesn't show on the, on the statistics. There are so few of them. Now, they are, they are important. They are serving a lot of people. We recognize them. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no put down there. But as far as common expressions of the body of Christ, the church of 20 or so is actually the most common expression. Mm, that's, that's so important. I think we forget that so often. 
so talk to me here. I, I talk to small church pastors and I feel like, and I didn't feel like this is improving, but you know, the people, you go to a conference and people say, how big is your church? And then, then they have to answer the question. And there's, it, there's almost an insecurity about that as if somehow their ministry doesn't matter because there's smaller people there, smaller number of people there. Why do small church pastors feel that way? And, and how, how can we help them see that? No, it's incredibly valuable. Yeah. Yeah. When I first started this ministry, uh, my first and still my my primary priority is to encourage small church pastors to know that their small church is of value. So the question you're asking right now goes to the absolute heart of everything that I do. I know because I was a small church pastor of a very good, healthy, wonderful church and was constantly discouraged. And for me, anyway, the discouragement came from, well, it actually came from what I titled my first book, The Grasshopper Myth, uh, which, and I got it from, you know, the book of Numbers where the spies go into the land and 10 of them come back with the report. Uh, there are giants in the land. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. And I think that's the core of the discouragement for most small church pastors is we see a grasshopper in our own mirror. We, we, mm. we constantly hear the drumbeat of how to break through this barrier, how to get bigger. Uh, you know, even recently I saw another article by somebody saying, there's nothing wrong with small churches, but some of us just want to work the, reach the world for Jesus. So we want to grow. And it's like, really, you think because we're in a small Ouch. church, we don't want to reach the world for Jesus yeah. too? No, we're not, we're not small because we're lazy or tired or settling for less. There, there, there are all kinds of other reasons why our church may be small, but it's not lack of passion for the gospel or for sharing our faith or for seeing the, the word of Christ go forward. And so when you hear words like that, they're, they're usually spoken uh, by well-meaning people, but they, there's, a, there's a hint of, of, of uh, unrecognized condescension to them that is really recognized by us. So when those are the constant voices, it gets very discouraging because we feel like we're not measuring up. Good so stuff. Carl, uh, you say that you believe being a small church is not a problem to fix, but a strategy God wants to use. Can you unpack that conviction that you have for us? Yeah. Well, you know, it was a, it was more than a few years ago that uh, somebody, I believe his name was Jesus, um, said, I will build my church. Uh, I remember him. And, and, yeah. yeah. And, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So there's a whole lot in that sentence that really matters. First of all, it's his church. He said he'll build it. He said he would actually build it. And uh, no power, including the very gates of hell, would prevail against it. So I'm going to trust that Jesus knew what he was saying and that Jesus is going to fulfill his promise and continue to build his church. And if you take a look at the last 2,000 years with Jesus building his church, what you see is very few pockets where individual congregations got large. We happen to be living in one of the very few places and times in America in the 21st century, late 20th, early 21st century. This is one of the very few pockets in time where congregations are getting larger and larger. In most places throughout the last 2,000 years, as Jesus has been building his church, the church has grown almost exclusively, not by individual congregations getting larger, but by smaller congregations multiplying. Mm. 
that has been, in fact, if you go around the world today, whether it's in Asia or uh, South America where, or portions of Africa where absolute explosive revivals of the church are happening, you will see a handful of very large churches, and those are the ones we tend to notice. But if you talk to missiologists, people who are actually on the ground and seeing what's happening, they will tell you almost to a person that it is happening almost exclusively on the multiplication of smaller venues and not on the building of the larger churches that we tend to notice. So this is the strategy God has been using. And I think we need to, one, recognize the reality of this, and then two, catch that wave that God has been using now for 2,000 years and counting. That's wonderful. Love to hear you talk about multiplication there because that, you know, we do need to multiply. It's not about gathering people in one spot, but seeing the gospel go forward from one generation to another generation to another generation. And I don't just, you know, mean that by ages. I mean, like, you know, generations of disciples. And yeah. so, so I'd like to unpack that or if you'd unpack that actually for us, you know, of course, we know small churches that aren't really faithful and fruitful in making disciples, but we do believe with our whole hearts that small churches can be faithful and fruitful in making disciples. So what characteristics does a pastor need to lead a small church that is fruitful in making disciples? Yeah, that's that to me is probably one is certainly one of the primary missing ingredients in unhealthy churches. And I don't just mean unhealthy small churches, but unhealthy churches of any size. There are large unhealthy churches that are not growing primarily by making disciples, but by, you know, trading, you know, but by bringing in Christians from other places. That is, that is unfortunately a stereotype for how large churches grow. That is not how typically large churches grow. Most large churches that are healthy, all large churches that are healthy are doing discipleship and are seeing conversion growth. But it is just as possible for a big church to be bad at discipleship as it is for a small church to be bad at discipleship. Yeah. Uh, so the numerical growth doesn't necessarily uh, say that, yes, they are doing discipleship or no, they aren't. So in a small congregation, yeah, it is one of the primary missing ingredients if a church is unhealthy, that they're typically not doing discipleship. And the the first key to that is that we have to understand discipleship does not happen by buying a better curriculum. I, I regularly am asked, what yeah. do you recommend as a curriculum for discipleship? And my answer is, all, is all, always, first of all, some version of, well, work, use whatever works for you, but, <laughs> and then what follows the but is my real message. <laughs> what follows <laughs> the but is discipleship is not about curriculum. Discipleship that Jesus practiced, that Paul practiced, that all the early disciples did, they didn't have a curriculum. What they had was a relationship with people. It was about mentoring. Mm-hmm. So the best discipleship through for 2000 years of counting has always involved mentoring and the key to mentoring is relationship. So whether it's a large church or a small church, if all you're doing is getting people done with the classes, then all you're doing is teaching classes. We think we're discipling. There, there are some churches that think they're discipling people when all we're really doing is getting them graduated from classes. Mm. All they're doing is the curriculum. If, if, if it's not, if the curriculum is not centered around a relationship with at least one other growing believer, then it's not mentoring and therefore it's not discipleship. Now, in a smaller congregation, a lot of that discipleship will happen more hands-on and directly with a lead pastor. In a big church, that mentoring is going to happen in small groups and discipleship groups on ministry teams. It, 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 it can happen in bigger or large churches, but the, key, the missing ingredient in most of those situations is the relationship factor. 
mentoring is how people are discipled and the center of mentoring is relationships. Yeah, good word. It is a good word. So uh, I think there's a lot of small church pastors listening, Carl, to this uh, episode. Hopefully they listen to all of our episodes. But, but what shifts in thinking does that small church pastor need to make in order to believe that their small church matters mm-hmm. and to lead that small church well? Yeah. Well, n- number one, we've, we've kind of danced around this a little bit already. The first one is this. You have to know that small churches can be effective churches. If, if you are doing what I did for years, which was even questioning the value of whether or not a small church can be effective, you can't be effective if you don't know you can be effective. Mm. <laughs> right? That's yeah. why, like, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, title of my, the title of the first chapter of my first book and my introductory line every time I speak to other pastors is, Hi, I'm Carl, and I'm a small church pastor. And, and the reason for that is because the my moment of being able to acknowledge that I was a small church pastor was an absolute turning point in my life when I recognized that saying I'm a small church pastor was not an admission of failure or defeat. It was simply a, a, a definition of my function in the body of Christ. So if we can recognize being a leader of a small church, not as an admission of defeat, but as a recognition of of our function in the body of Christ, that is step one to then being able to have a healthy and effective small church. You've got to know that it's okay. Yeah. That's that's the primary. And once you do that, then you have to look around and go, okay, now how do small churches function differently than big churches? Because most of the leadership ideas you've been getting have come from a big church context. And the reasons for that are pretty simple. When a big church is there and it's growing, we all go, hey, we want to learn from that. And then they're the ones who get the book contracts because they've got a big enough audience to be able to sell books. And that is, I am not putting publishers or authors down by that. You sim- you have to make your money back when you're printing a book. I get it. I, I'm i in that space now. I have, you know, I used to look at it and go, well, they're not going to do it if they can't sell it. Well, no, they're they're not going to print a book that they're going to lose tens of thousands of dollars on. I, I wouldn't do that either. Um, so I, you know, I, so I'm not, I'm not putting that down. But, but what that results in is that 90% of our material is coming from fewer than 10% of our churches, and they represent maybe one or two percent of the reality for most pastors. So they're not speaking from or to where 90 plus percent of, of pastors are. And so when, once you recognize your small church can be valuable and healthy, then you have to look at it and go, okay, then what does it mean? And what can I learn from other small church pastors about how to do small well? So that's key number two. And that's the second part of my ministry, first of all, to encourage and secondly, to provide resources for small churches that are different and distinct from big churches, not because the big church stuff is wrong, but because we've got a lot of that. And so I've got to, I've got to glean in the corners for the stuff that we've missed. Yeah, that's really good stuff, man. Boy, embracing that, you know, and I appreciate, I really appreciate it. I don't know if you did this intentionally, but embracing your function in the body of Christ. And you didn't use the word identity, which I really appreciate because none of our identities is in the work that we do, our identities in Christ. And I appreciate you talked about embracing your function. Yeah. I think it's so critical. So thanks for hitting on that. Um, so, you know, now you graduated from Bible college in 81. So 25 is, you know, it's just a little while ago uh, when you were 25. <laughs> um, so if you 
could go back in time and say one thing to 25-year-old Carl Vaders, what would you say? Wow, yeah. 25 is a little while ago. 25 is a little while ago for all three of my kids, so it's a little further than a little while ago for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in pain, my brother. I think yeah. we're about the same age. I hear you. Uh, yeah, if I were to go back and talk to my 25-year-old self, I would say wherever God takes you is where God wants you. And you can not just survive, but thrive in that place, uh, even if the numbers don't match what you're looking for. Um, and I would also know that my 25-year-old self would roll my eyes at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I, I hope I would. Because I've had people say, you know, and I've said this, you know, why aren't we teaching this in our Bible college and seminaries, you know, to our young pastors? And we need to. But I know because I've I've been in the room with them. I have been in rooms with, you know, small church pastors, and I can watch the younger it is, the more they're kind of like busy on their tablets and they roll their eyes. This isn't going to apply to me. And I know what's going to happen is they're going to go, okay, fine. I, all these people, they, they couldn't do it, but I'm going to make it. I'm going to get a big church. That's where I was. I was going to have a big church. I was going to have a big ministry. That's what was going to happen. And if somebody had told me, hey, you're probably going to be in a small church for most of your ministry, I'd have rolled my eyes. But five years down the road, 10 years down the road or whatever, when I found myself in the same place as 90% of my peers in a smaller church that did not appear like it was actually going to get bigger, I would then at least have a seed planted in the back of my brain of, there was that one guy that one time that I rolled my eyes at, what was it that he said, right? But when I was 35, when I was 45, I didn't have a seed planted in the back of my brain to go, hey, there was that one guy. I had to find it for myself. So when I'm talking to seasoned pastors who have already gone through the frustrations, what I say lands with their heart and they go, oh, somebody's finally putting into language that I understand what I'm feeling. When I'm talking to younger guys, I know they roll their eyes and that's fine. But at some point, what I say is going to click with them and they're going to know there's somewhere I can go to find help. I didn't have anywhere to go to find help. I had to find it myself. So that's a little a little more than answering that question, but I, I and it, in fact, there's a part of me that that thinks if I am talking to a room full of twenty something pastors and pastors to be, and they're all sitting there wanting to pastor a small church, I'm kind of worried for that room, right? Mm -hmm. When you're twenty, if your goal is to be in a small place and do small things, right? At, at twenty, we ought to. The, the the drive at 20 ought to be to do big things for Jesus. And I get it that at that less mature stage, big things for Jesus means big churches. So I don't have a problem with the younger pastors and pastors to be kind of having this size obsession. That's kind of how it works in the 20 something brain. Yeah. So that's fine. So I, again, I don't expect to be, I don't expect them to light up and go, wow, yes, that's me. But I want to plant the seed in their, in their hearts for later. Yeah. Good word. Yeah. Good word. So we, when we had you on the podcast the last time uh, in uh, 2020, we thought the pandemic would soon be over. In fact, I uh, was talking to somebody yesterday about a, a webinar we did about that time with Daniel Yang on relaunching after the pandemic. He gave us great stuff, but uh, you know we were a little bit premature. Here we are in <laughs> June of uh, 2021 when we're recording this, and we are just now uh, really 
turning the corner on the pandemic. So you've written a blog post about lessons from the pandemic that pastors can build on. Can you walk us through some of those lessons, Carl? Sure. Yeah. Well, there's 11 of them, so we'll we'll have to go through them. We won't cover all of them, but um, I mean, it starts with things like you know that we've under we've recognized how important technology is and how it can help. So technology matters, but I think what we've also learned is that people really matter more. Hmm. It, you know, I, when, when the when this began, our church was not doing live stream. We're now doing live stream, and we do it pretty well. Once we've kind of got the camera locked in place and people online can hear us and see us well. Uh, we kind of just kind of let that go. Yeah, we inc- we improve it when we can, but we're not going to be obsessed with it because it's far more important that people know that we love them and that we're reaching out to them that that than that the technology is working. Uh, at the beginning of this, and I don't know if I said this in the previous podcast, but at the beginning of this, we set a parameter for our church leaders. We told them if we get to the end of this and anybody who's a, a regular part of our church can say, nobody reached out to me, that will be our failure. It won't be about how well we framed a shot or how well our technology is going. It will be, did anybody feel like we they did not get reached out to? So I think what we've learned through this primarily is that the gathering really does matter. The being together in the same room is absolutely essential. And yeah. with that, uh, you know, worship is essential. It, it, it uh, The phrase, um, the phrase that has always bugged me, I get where it comes from, but it bugs me. <laughs> Here's the phrase. When people say, we, you, you don't go to church, you are the church. Or we don't go to church, we are the church. Second half, yes. First half, no. <laughs> we are the church, yes. We don't go to church, false. <laughs> it's both and. Mm-hmm. We are the church and the going matters. <laughs> yeah. So to say we don't go to church, we are the church, that's just, it's not biblical. Yes, we go to church. We gather. The New Testament has tons of stuff about what, the importance of gathering as the church. And if this past year and a half hasn't shown us how important it is to gather by showing us how much we missed it when we couldn't, I'm sorry, but sitting and watching it on a screen on Sunday, no matter how well the production is, it isn't even a shadow of what it means to be in the same room together, worshiping and serving. That is so important. Yeah, that is good stuff, you know, and I think it certainly has given us lots of reasons to learn lessons like that, you know. Obviously, we showed that we can go online and we can minister to people that way, but that the gathering is still so important to the body of Christ, seeing the glory of Jesus and feeling engaged in the mission of Jesus. So thanks for that. Um, yeah. Give us a couple more, Carl. I think we've got, we got some uh, time. Yeah, yeah. Let me get, uh, give a couple. I, I think unity, uh, the importance of unity in the church, boy, uh, this past year, th- th- uh, for me, I think the biggest long-term damage to the church of this past year is the lack of unity that we have presented, that, that we have allowed secondary issues to splinter the body of Christ over this past year and a half. Totally agree. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, that's true. Yeah, whether it's political or vaccines or masks or whatever. You know, in, in our congregation, we have we have people on both sides of the political spectrum. We have pro and anti-vax, pro and anti-mask. You name the subject matter. We've got people in our church who disagree on it. But we never had a split. We never had a had a big issue we had to address from the pulpit. Everybody got along. We didn't lose anybody over any of those issues because from the very beginning, and and the, the more the splintering around us happened, the more we came back to, we are united on mission. We are united 
on mm. Christ and him crucified and bringing that message to lost and hurting people. And whether you're wearing a mask when you do that or not, whether you are vaccinated when you do that or not, whether you whether you voted Republican or Democrat, it doesn't matter. We are doing this together. And yeah, it, it, the sadness of people splint the church members and churches themselves splintering along political lines has just been so, so sad. So we have got to get back to the idea of a unified church by uniting around what really, really does matter. That's going to be huge for us. Well, hey, you've got a boatload of resources to share with people from books to, of course, your blog that we just referenced. So uh, tell us about some of those uh, resources for small churches and their pastors. Sure. Uh, actually, uh, like the week the pandemic started, my uh, my one of my books came out and it just sat there on the shelf because it was like nobody feels like promoting a book. So uh, 100 Days to a Healthier Church walks churches through a very, very intense 100-day process, starting from whose church is it really? Jesus said, I will build my church all the way through. What's your strategy? What is God calling you to do? Uh, and then, but actually, um, last summer in the middle of pandemic, I actually wrote very quickly a book called The Church Resource Guide that helps uh, churches recover from things like this. And I read it, I went through it again recently and realized, oh, okay, it still applies because I tried to make it about uh, coming out of difficult season, whether that season is pandemic or something else. But actually, the newest tool, it just started uh, this week, uh, last week, is I now have a podcast too. Wow. Yeah, just came out last week. It's called right. Can This Work Yeah, Can This Work in a Small Church? And uh the idea is to take a a a church leadership principle that we're kind of used to hearing from a big church perspective and ask ourselves, can this work in a small church? And then at the end of each podcast, the answer is yes, it can work in a small church if you do this, or no, this really can't work in a small church, but here are some options for you to try instead. So uh we're just beginning to put together our first, we've got three episodes out now. Uh, three or four episodes out now, um, and uh, and more coming every single week. So that's the newest thing. It's on on all podcast platforms. Can this work in a small church? Fantastic! I have to listen yeah. to that. I didn't know about it yet. That's great, Carl. We appreciate you, and you speak so um, such important words to like eighty five percent of our churches that are two hundred or under, uh, or one fifty or under, give or take fifty. If I were <laughs> there, you go. <laughs> Yeah, catch up with the lingo, will you? <laughs> I'm always trying to help Terry catch up. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, so, thanks for taking the time to invest in our alliance leaders. I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you about uh, some ways we might work together in the future. So alliance leaders, sit on the edge of your seats and uh, wait for that uh, possibility. But uh, especially appreciate you joining us today and uh, sharing your heart with us, Carl. Absolutely. It's a joy to sit with you, man. Thanks so much. Good to be with you guys, too. Thanks so much. God bless you, my friend. Alan, uh, really enjoyed the conversation with uh, Carl Vaders and loved his perspectives. Um, yeah, he says he takes some things away from the church growth movement that he likes, but the other things he's kind of tossed aside and, and uh, truly believes that a smaller church can be healthy, and I love it. A smaller church can multiply. Yeah. What's stuck in your head and heart today, Alan? Well, you know, I love that multiply stuff. That's what I do. I'm excited about it. Uh, But I think the phrase that sticks with me is that a small church is not a problem to fix, but a strategy that God wants to use. 
because it takes all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people. And, um, you know, he, he talked about how how insulting it is for somebody to say that because somebody's in a small church, they don't have a passion for reaching lost people. And I know that's true. I know a lot of small church pastors that love the town that God has put them in and yep. desperately want to see that. And their face lights up when they tell me about somebody coming to Jesus. And I know they're passionate about that. Carl gets that. He values them and prepares resources to help them know that they're valued and that they can uh, be fruitful making disciples uh, in the context that God has placed them. Love it. Love it. Love it. Yeah, indeed. Well, I came to faith in Christ in a small church as uh, he would define it. And uh, all of my ministry has been in churches of either 50 plus or minus 50 uh, or 150 plus or minus 50, stretch it a little bit more, but not a lot more. (laughs) And uh, I believe those churches can be healthy and I've seen it happen. I've seen them multiply. So be encouraged out there, uh, small church pastor, that what you do really matters. And we appreciate that you listen to this uh, podcast, whatever size your church is, whatever way you're involved in ministry. We're glad you're connecting to this and saying, hey, I want to learn and grow from the uh, guests on Equipping You podcast. So thanks for listening. And uh, we'll be back next time with uh, episode eight. You know what? There are honest moments in podcasts. I don't remember who we're talking to next time on episode eight. You've got to listen to find out. It is a mystery. Meanwhile, keep the faith. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Equipping You podcast. If you liked this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our channel. We hope you will join us for our next episode. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org.